Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 and I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. Uh, you can find tickets to any movies that play there at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis, and my at is Nintendoofus. Who am I? Why, I'm I'm Mr. Narvison, an old friend of the Christie's. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Chitaki Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. And today we are joined by very special guest, Nick Ransbottom, and recurring guest, I should say, returning after, oh, it's been a good few months. How are you doing, Nick? Uh, doing pretty good. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the Ezio Kinway, and I did not have a reference prepared in advance. Um, You'll note that I did not enter. Uh, I'm not surprised by that. Um, wow. Well, we think on our feet here at Trilove, um, and some of us are, uh, are are really bad at it. Um, today's movie is going to be Friday the 13th, playing at the Trilon this coming weekend in preparation for, I guess, getting ramped up for horror movie season, Halloween and the like. Uh, Aaron, do you have a quick summary for us of this film? Indeed, I do. Uh, yes, Friday the 13th, 1980 film directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Uh, it is a slasher horror film about a group of teenagers at a summer camp who are slowly murdered one by one by an unknown assailant. Uh, that's my summary. That's it. Uh, no, Incredible. Th- th- yes, this is, the, this is the first film in the Friday the 13th series. Um, so it would later go on to star uh, Jason Voorhees as the kind of hockey mask wearing machete wielding uh, villain that I think we all are generally aware of. Um, this film does not have that, but this, this series kind of evolved to be a massive franchise involving video games and comic book adaptations. Um, there are 12 overall movies in kind of the main series. Uh, the funniest of which to me is undeniably Friday the 13th part eight, Jason takes Manhattan. Uh, if anybody would like to guess what the Rotten Tomato score for that movie is, uh, I'd be interested to see if anybody can get it. Uh, I'm going to say 12% fresh, I, baby. Okay. I will go 19. Sorry to cut you off, Harry. No worries. I'm going to do 28. I'm going to say 6. Look at Harry coming in here with 28%. It's a lot of faith in the Friday the 13th franchise. No, it, uh, it has 8%. So I think Nick takes it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow. Solid, solid eight. So uh, we will be getting to that one eventually, I'd assume. Right? 1% for every installment in the film or in the series. Right? I, figured, I figured it could have been one of those things where like it has 12 reviews and one of every four reviews is like some horror aficionado who's just really into the franchise. Yeah, it's a blog called like bloodgore.com. Big, big horror fan. Yeah. Dive, yeah. Uh, you know, trusted source of reviews for 
all things horror, uh, bloodfanreviews.com. Uh, so my quick take about this movie is that it's not worth the hype. I did not enjoy very much watching it, but it is, it's, it's got its moments where it's just cheesy enough to be, uh, in interesting, I guess, to keep attention, but very, very boring, far more boring than I imagined based on everything that I'd heard about it. This was of course my first watch. I was never really that big into horror films as a kid. And then in college, when I watched Halloween was for the first time was kind of where I got exposed to those sort of proto you know, versions of what exists today. Uh, but not Friday the 13th was not one of them. And, um, yeah, not, not my, not my bega, not my cup of tea necessarily. Uh, but I'll leave it up to the rest of the team. We can go in CHA order for this as well. Uh, for, I guess, just quick takes your, your overall opinion of the movie and, and things that might support that opinion. Sure. Uh, so every October for the past few years, I've tried to get in a few, seminal works uh if you will as they pertain to the horror movie genre so i watched uh this friday the 13th for the first time last year and came away with similar feelings that i did this time um the first time i watched it was by myself and uh last night i watched it uh in a small group um the outcome still felt the same though uh and i'm not that much of a, a horror completist i can't speak for the rest of this uh jason Voorhees saga um I guess aside from the Saw movies, which for some reason I've seen all of them, um, and that may be uh, weirdly related to the discussion we have today about uh, this legacy, just because Friday the 13th seems to me anyway to be kind of built up by the sheer volume of sequels that it has uh, to its name. And that's pure speculation uh, on my part, obviously, and maybe we'll get into that later. But that's just me grasping at straws for why this is so fondly remembered. Um, The soundtrack is admittedly probably an all-timer, um, at least for the genre, and the outdoor imagery does its job, uh, you know, where it's a warm, summer, campy kind of vibe that we got, but everything else in between doesn't quite get there for me. Uh, the slow burn building of tension doesn't really land, uh, in part because the pacing of the deaths seems kind of skewed toward the middle. I don't know if anybody else felt like that, which leaves the third act feeling just kind of like we're tiptoeing. Uh, to the finish but I guess to its credit watching this movie again I felt like I was able to place every incoming scene from the first time that I watched it uh, kind of mapping the two experiences together so maybe that's something you know it's maybe not the best slasher tentpole uh, but it's not forgettable which is maybe the most important thing Um, so those are my thoughts yeah, I have a similar relationship to horror that Jason does. I didn't really grow up with it. And so I have an interesting experience with this movie in that I feel like I'm out of the target demographic a little bit. Um, something I've always really thought about horror movies, especially sort of seminal tentpole horror movies like this, is that the appropriate age to watch them is actually just a little bit too young to be watching them. And so you are uh, scared by them in an outsized way that gets them to sort of imprint on you in a way they otherwise might not. I have some fond memories with horror movies in that vein, but unfortunately that was obviously not the case for this one uh, and is not for a lot of horror movies just because Uh, historically I've been a big baby and I've avoided them, (laughs) but, um, that being said, it was interesting to watch this movie and to sort of understand and put together where it might've become influential or at least historically how it might've felt fresh or interesting. It's interesting, for instance, that Wikipedia even says that this was a ripoff of Halloween, like, um, in, in terms of marketing, even that was just 
explicitly what they were going for. It was made on a very small budget relative to its time. It made a lot of money back, which is what led to the sequels into the franchisation of it. So that, that all was very interesting to watch. Um, it's, it's a sensibility that I don't have a, a great amount of vocabulary for, right? So there's a sense in which I might not understand or appreciate some of the nuances in terms of its history or in terms of its impact. That being said, I did feel the way that Jason did about it. Um, I found it really boring. I, f- I found that it was, it was barely a movie, to be honest, uh, especially by the middle. I think that they try to do some interesting things with um, the subversion of pacing and plotting in order to create a sort of dreadful, eerie atmosphere. I don't really think that those things work, though, again, that might just be because I've seen too many movies and I'm, uh, you know, uh, much older than I think the target demographic or at least my idealized demographic of this would be. Um, but yeah, I, there's, there are no characters in this movie, really. Uh, all of the plot information is given to you about 15 minutes before the end of the movie. Uh, it is dreadfully dull and dark uh, in terms of actual visuals. I didn't find much of the cinematography anything to write home about, although I like the Evil Dead POV camera, I guess. Um, and I like the soundtrack a lot. Uh, so it was fun to watch with Cody and Aaron, but it was not a good movie uh, in, in, in some interesting ways, I guess. Yeah, I will, uh, I think echo some of that. Um, I, I will say that I, I think I share what at least my kind of everyday co-hosts here have already said in regard to kind of the, the lack of vocabulary around uh, horror films, uh, specifically slasher films. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of the kind of quote unquote great or like notable horror films, but I am not an aficionado, uh, in any regard. And I think that horror maybe more than any other genre, uh, is a kind of, it seems to me made up of a pretty siloed community where people who get horror really get horror and really like talking about horror and oftentimes really dislike the way that other people talk about horror. Um, so I, I'm kind of walking on eggshells, I think a little bit. Um, but that is to say that I, I didn't, Uh, love this movie. I think I had a good time watching this movie. I think part of that was uh, watching it with uh, the buds. Um, And I think that's a good way to do it. You know, this is not a movie that is actually that scary. There's maybe one jump scare that I think worked pretty well. Uh, You know, it's pretty campy uh, in in a way that you expect. (laughs) Okay. It is literally pretty campy in a way that you would expect. Um, And so I I enjoyed the experience of watching it. I do think that uh, maybe in opposition to some of the other people here, I actually think that the third act is pretty good. Um, if goofy at times, I think that there are moments in the third act of this film where I start to kind of get the visceral nature of slasher films. Um, and I guess the, the last thing that I'd add is just what, trying to pull my thoughts together. I think that this is a hard movie to analyze in the way that we often do on this podcast, which is not an insult to how we do it. I like that. But this is a movie that is pretty transparently about what it's about. And the reason that it is popular to me uh, is because that it is marketed a certain way and delivers exactly on what it is uh, marketed as and that it has violence and pretty kind of unabashed sexuality um, and that's what the movie is. That's why it's appealing. That's why a lot of people like it. And I struggle to find any sort of larger kind of thematic take on this film. Although I think there is some stuff there around issues of like gender and whatnot. Um, 
But in general, I think this is a movie that delivers on those things. I think a problem for us today is that it's very easy to get what this movie is delivering in more uh, kind of manageable bites. Uh, and that's how I usually do it. So, um, but I enjoyed watching the film, but I, I don't think it's great, I guess. Sure. Uh, Nick, hit us. Well, uh, now I feel like I might be the only person on this episode that actually likes the horror genre. Um, uh, this was my third time watching this movie, I think. Uh, I liked it a little more this time around. I do agree it's not really a good movie. It is entertaining uh, in some parts. Um, as a slasher, it, it, it's it's lacking something. I actually wouldn't consider the first one to be a slasher in the typical sense. I think it's more of an American take on Jalo movies, which are really erotic murder mysteries um, from uh, Europe, specifically Italy. Um, the... <laughs> There's something appealing about how cheesy and independent the movie clearly is. Uh, you can tell they didn't have much of a budget. You can tell the actors were doing this kind of just for the money. But you can also tell it seems like they had a good time with it. Uh, I think Tom Savini's uh, work with special effects is great. The scene, obviously, with Kevin Bacon getting the arrow through his neck, which is probably one of the most famous kills in 80s horror. Uh, it still looks good. Um, there's not a lot of on-screen violence, I would say, in compared to typical slasher movies or any horror movie of the 80s. Um, I feel like most of the violence comes from uh, the bodies that we see later. Um, so... Because Friday the 13th is a series that is so notable uh, nowadays for its graphic violence, we need to go back to the first one, and it's a very... It has more of a whodunit mystery type of vibe, um, and it's relatively tame uh, in comparison, not just to the rest of the series, but, you know, there were other movies before it that were much more violent. I would say Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, in 1974. Um, let's see, Black Christmas, which I think was Bob Clark, um, is a great example. That's also from 1974. And it has a character being asphyxiated to death with a plastic bag, slowly. Um which I would argue is much more violent than anything we actually see in Friday the 13th, despite the levels of blood. So when you go, when you approach the movie today, especially if you haven't seen the rest of the series or you're not a typical fan of the horror genre, it, it's really lacking something. And I think that's why it comes across as boring um, because it, I mean, it, it kind of is. Uh, so I, I have complicated feelings about it. Uh, it's a very important movie for the horror genre. It, I think, really kick-started, even more than Halloween, the the slasher genre, which pretty much defined horror in the 80s and the 90s. 
for better or worse. I would argue worse. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. It, I mean, it is what it is. It's a movie you have to take at face value. There are enjoyable aspects. There's a lot not to enjoy. But, I, I don't know. I, I still think it's fun at the end of the day. Sure, so. sure. I mean... When I say that I'm not into the horror genre and that this movie didn't work on me, I don't mean to say that it's like a bad example of what it is, right? I don't know if I can even name good examples of what it is because I, I'm not w- too well versed in slasher, uh, in the slasher genre. What I've seen are, and I'm really glad you brought up Black Christmas. Uh, everybody listened to our episode 50 on Black Christmas featuring special guest Matt Yost, one of my favorite episodes of this podcast. Um, wow. Because, thank you. Uh, because it is very, like, I think I've seen that, and that is, like, top end of slashers for me. Um, I'm not going to rail on this for a long time, but I do want to come back to that in time uh, because it's it's a movie I thought about a lot while watching this. Um, but it looks like Aaron's got some thoughts, so I'll let him take it away. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think that's an interesting point specifically about this series. To, to me, because um, I have seen the original Nightmare on Elm Street. I have seen Halloween. Uh, I did not actually see Black Christmas, but there are... I think a number of uh, slasher films, even kind of before we get to the question of like franchises, right? I think there are certain slasher films that have uh, kind of a level of respect that they're afforded just due to their, I guess, artistic qualities, right? Uh, More so than just financial success. I think that Halloween uh, specifically, you know, um, Last House on the Left, things like that. There are lots of questions around the artistic merit of those kind of films, Part of that is looking back on them today. Uh, Part of that is a lot of discussions when they first came out about violence and exploitation uh, and kind of a lot of the the questions around censorship and and, uh, uh, kind of inappropriate media that were conversations that were happening at that time. Um, Friday the 13th, on the other hand, uh, in my mind, and I could be totally wrong about this, but my impression was it was it was never quite on that level, right? Like it always represented... Uh, a less artistic kind of more cheesy and campy and maybe even uh, experimental in a weird way, uh, a series. Like I, I know I was joking earlier about Jason takes Manhattan, but like there are movies in this series where Jason does all sorts of wacky shit, right. Uh, in a way that wouldn't be seen in a lot of other horror series. Um, and so to me, this, this series was always more campy, was never taken as seriously. Um and I don't know, I kind of found that interesting when watching this film, which does also feel so toned down in that manner. Yeah, that was one of a couple of really good points that Nick made. I think part of the reason for that is is honestly because in a, in a strange sense, this movie flew under the radar. Um, and, and that's a silly thing to say, right, when it, it has the acclaim now that it enjoys and it spawns so many sequels and it made so much money. I think all of those elements made it a sort of smash surprise hit that sort of helped make it one of the fundamental sort of er films of 80s slasher movies, which is so interesting to me when you see the ways in which it sets up perfectly that template and also the ways in which it is sort of prototypical of that template and is, is sort of a much more surprisingly restrained, as Nick said, and um, more moody um, 
piece than you than you might expect and you can see sort of the extrapolation from it it's like oh i can see how this develops into the thing that i'm more familiar with uh when i think about 80 slasher movies but at the same time this movie is so clearly not an example of that like nick pointed out in some ways that are legitimately interesting you can totally see how other filmmakers looked at this movie and were like okay like these people they had no great actors they had uh dollars. they just had this sort of idea for this very simple i like tale about a massacre basically and look at how much money it made and look at how many people responded to it we can do that right there's almost a democratization of the horror genre that is sort of really continued today i mean i think that that in a weird way horror has a really low bar for entry in terms of like like making one and it, it's a it's really a um a genre that maybe more than most popular genres rewards sort of uh creativity and almost like a diy spirit um to this day and i think that this is sort of an interesting um example of an early approach to that and so that's something that about this movie if you even don't take much else away from it it's sort of there and um for me in fact like it's even more interesting to think about like the, the sort of movie you could make if you made this better and sort of you play armchair director. And I can see a bunch of filmmakers also doing that. And so I think that there, this movie is an important movie in, in fact, several ways, including how unsuccessful it is in some ways. And that's almost more fun to watch and to think about than a really successful example, right? Like Alien is also that in a lot of ways, but Alien is also the most perfect version of the thing that it did. And so it's it's almost more interesting to watch such an imperfect version of the thing and then to, to think about how it could be improved upon and in fact, how it had been both improved upon and taken in so many different directions uh mutated style uh all of that was was pretty cool for me yeah i i will say i agree with you on horror being very low bar in terms of entry i think that's especially true for ace horror that was a time and i would credit most of it to friday the 13th but also a nightmare on elm street um where people started to get very experimental, very creative with what they wanted to do, especially because if you stuck to practical effects, there was so much you could do on a small budget. And it it led to some very interesting and creative ideas. Uh, I think that's one of the appeals of the horror genre is you don't... There doesn't need to be a deeper meaning do everything. Obviously, some some things do have a deeper meaning, regardless of intention. Uh, people read Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a commentary on the Vietnam War, as a commentary on capitalism. And to Toby Hooper, it was kind of a comedy uh, and less of a horror movie, which is bonkers to me. Um, I'm going to agree with Aaron, too. I do think of the famous slasher series, Friday the 13th has always veered more towards campy, cartoonish. Um, I mean, he goes to space. There's there's an entire movie where Jason goes to space. Sounds uh, great. Sounds cool. It's not. I promise you. But you should still watch it because it's yeah. just ridiculous. Uh, Jason Takes Manhattan that you keep bringing up, which is a 
horrid, horrid movie. Um, I think Jason actually only is in Manhattan for about 15 minutes in that movie. Uh, but it's great because you see him punch a guy's head off. Like, these were never movies that were supposed to be shocking for their violence. They were, I, I, I don't think they were trying to say something or to even make you feel a certain way, which, you know, when you move towards later decades uh, in the mid-2000s when torture porn got really popular with Saw and Hostel, and the violence seemed to have some sort of a commentary, in this franchise, it doesn't. And I think that's part of what makes it appealing. I I watched these movies when I was like, I don't know, five, I think, because they are so cartoony. They're they're not scary. None of them are. But it gets you interested in the horror genre. Uh I, I will say if you want to see a better version of this premise, there's a a movie that came out one year later called The Burning by uh directed by Tony Malum, which stars a very young Jason Alexander. Um, Holy shit. It is extremely good. The characters are extremely good. It's very well written. Uh Tom Savini, I believe, actually also did the special effects on that movie. It takes place at a summer camp. It focuses the the children are actually there at the summer camp as opposed to this movie where it's just the counselors. Um, and it takes a very long time for violence to start in that movie because it builds so much with making the characters at the very least two dimensional. Um, and in Friday the 13th, the series and then also this one specifically, there's barely anything to the characters. You know, they are essentially fodder for the murders. Um, but, you know, it's... I, I, I don't know. Um, Harry is right. This is kind of... It, it, the main reason people started getting into horror is because this movie was such a massive, absolutely massive success. And I think it's because teenagers wanted to see a movie about teenagers dying. Uh, and you can argue there's some deeper meaning to slashers uh, as a whole as to what makes it appealing to people. For some, it's kind of like, you know, going on a roller coaster. Some view it as a way to confront uh, young mortality um, and feelings of that. I there, there's you can read into it in a lot of different ways, right? Um, you know, yeah. To borrow your own phrasing, not everything mean, needs to have a deeper meaning. I think, I think I would agree more with your point, Nick, about it being uh, sort of that. You didn't use this term, but like a devil may care, like how, oh man, they are really just going for it. They have no money. This is entirely an advertising, uh, you know, like revenue generating venture based on the success of another film, which Harry brought up earlier. This movie was um, sort of like advertised before it existed, much in the same way that Hausu was, uh, you know, a few years earlier. I, I think I'd be more on that train of mind if 
it were funnier, if it were a little bit more self-aware, clearly, um, maybe it was, and maybe just the definition of self-aware has changed over the last 30 years since four years since, since this movie was released. Um, but I do, I do like that, that track we're on about like Harry used the term democratization of horror where like this movie is such an imperfect thing. It's very easy to play again, that armchair director thing. And I think for me, why that rings to uh, why that, why that makes sense to me is because that take plays very well to the participatory, excuse me, participatory, Jesus Christ, participatory nature of the horror genre where like our expectations of horror and what we'll say our expectations of horror are, are sometimes two different things. We want to go in and be scared. We want to be like, we just want to get our blood pumping. We want to like, just sort of cringe at the violence. And yet this movie recognized that that was a thing, that that was the impulse for most people seeing horror and threw in near the end, like some intrigue, some stories, some of that giallo stuff you were mentioning, Nick, where like it, it tried to be that little bit of a twist. It, it seems like that was considered a little bit too late into the ideation and creation of the movie, but it seems like it's one of the things that it's going for. Um, again, I, I wholeheartedly don't think it works and maybe that's the magic of it is that it doesn't work. Maybe it's like to Harry's point, you can see how it doesn't work. You can see like the imperfections in this movie and say, this could be more perfect. I'm going to go out and make it more perfect. I'm going to do a version of this that is a more streamlined version. I think that's sort of how we've gotten to the various like movements and counter movements within horror that have led us to the point we're at now where, you know, modern horror is considered like there's a, there's a divide between like, you know, lights out and something like, um, you know, that's supposedly more high minded, somewhat more like head up its own ass kind of thing. Like, like midsummer, it's all that like, so a sense of self-awareness that this movie does or doesn't have and how that reacts with what audiences go to the genre for, you know, I might be talking completely out of my ass because I'm not real. I don't consider myself in that audience yet. Maybe as I watch more, um, but it just like when we're talking about how, what this movie doesn't have being as important as what it does have, that's where my mind goes is how does that feed off of the basic instinct of people who see horror movies and why. Hey everyone, this is Cody Narvison. You may know me from Trilove, a movie podcast, or you may know me from somewhere else completely different. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about today's episode, which is sponsored by Camp Crystal Lake. Now, for those unaware, the fine folks at Camp Crystal Lake have a reputation for providing wholesome and enriching outlets for children, preteens, and teenagers throughout their nationwide campsites. And their motivation is to get young people outside, to keep them active, and to keep them safe in controlled and trustworthy environments. Now, a recent study from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention found that only 5% of grade school students routinely participate in a daily 30-minute session of physical activity, proving that a modern trend of inactivity is plaguing our younger generations. Technology has been cited as a primary contributing factor to a decrease in physical activity among our youth. And that's where Camp Crystal Lake comes in. They understand the need to completely remove the temptation of technology. That's why the summer programming at Camp Crystal Lake includes no utilization of technological devices or activities. Not only that, but each campsite is also strategically located in the most isolated environment possible so that no satellite communications or GPS services can infringe upon your child's summer or their safety. The Camp Crystal Lake team also wanted to take the time to address an incident that took place at their New Jersey campsite some years back. 
Obviously, this was an incredibly unfortunate occurrence, and the camp was rightfully shut down while the proper channels were investigated. Today I'm here to formally announce on behalf of the Camp Crystal Lake staff that the New Jersey camp will be reopened in time for the next summer session. They've got a team of counselors and staff members who are working hard to make sure their site is properly renovated, and from what I've heard, their new programming lineup is going to be pretty sharp. Now, for a limited time only, Trilove is partnering with Camp Crystal Lake for their summer registration. Go online to lakecrystalcamp.com to register your child today, and enter the code GOOFY to get 80% off your registration fee. Once again, that's G-O-O-F-Y to get a whopping 80% off your $5 registration fee. They're letting us slash prices just for our listeners, so do not delay. You owe it to yourself to give your child a summer experience they're not going to forget, no matter how much they may want to. Camp Crystal Lake. Come on in. The water's fine. Okay, I have two two thoughts. They're sort of contradictory, so it's dialectics time, baby. But uh, first of all, to speak more directly to your point, Jason, um, I think that something that this movie really nails and prefigures, or it doesn't necessarily prefigure because there's a long history of it, as Nick pointed out, but like the sensuality of this movie is so central to taking this movie in, um, in contrast to so many other movies. And I think that, that horror movies in general are more about the sensual than almost any other genre. Uh, it's like, like all horror movies are sort of erotic. There's, there's sort of, uh, an argument that's made in, you know, uh, academic circles or whatever. Um, I don't know what I'm talking about uh, like that, but, but that's so clearly true here, right? Like you're supposed to experience horror movies somewhat differently. You're supposed to feel your body when you're watching them, right? Like you're supposed to be aware of, uh, yourself. It's, it's supposed to literally make your skin crawl. It's supposed to give you goosebumps. Right. And I think that, um, this movie sort of distills that in such a like clear way where it dispenses with that, which is unnecessary in so many ways, right. Where it's like, this is a movie that is straight up basically explicitly telling you that you're not supposed to care about these characters, that they're meat. And they're also sexy meat, right? And it's it's sexy meat to appeal to a target demographic that is, like Nick said, also teenagers. Like, this is so explicitly a movie about teenagers for teenagers. And that brings me to my second point, which is my take minds point, which is that I actually think that this movie does have a message in, uh, that I took away from it that maybe we can talk about, maybe we don't have to. I think that it's almost an exploitation movie about intergenerational guilt, uh, both in terms of sexuality and in terms of like settler colonialism. And I think that it actually does some kind of interesting things with that, despite being such a sensual, uh, dumb movie in so many ways. And so we can maybe talk about that or maybe not. That might just be, be me being up my ass about it. But uh, there's, there's some fun, very interesting like guilt and anxiety that when you consider the target audience of teenagers who are very interested in sex and one another, and what they might actually be worried about, there's something pretty funny and pretty like um, exploitative in a, in a winking way about the anxieties that this movie is making manifest. So that's kind of an interesting aspect of it, especially when you consider how that is a theme that itself recurs in so many horror movies, right? Um, horror movies sort of have a reputation for 
an almost inadvertent conservatism because they're trying to scare you with the things that you might be afraid of about yourself or about your society. Uh, this movie is also an interesting and intriguing or example of some of that in some funny ways. Uh, that's what I got. Can, can I, sorry, can I jump in real quick? Cause that conservatism point is so good. That is just one thing that I, I thought of while watching this movie is that, that I think there is a very weird, uh, not like cross horror movies, right? Right. It's, it's such a weird, like juxtaposition where like the movie is like very, you could argue politically conservative in which a lot of like young people are getting killed, uh, for expressing their sexuality, not because of, right. But that is kind of the, the filmic language here is that, uh, you know, these young kids are having sex and that is leading to their death. Um, but at the same time, like this movie exists solely to allow young, uh, uh, young teenagers to see, uh, some sexual intercourse and to see some violence, right? Where it's like it is, the movie is kind of critiquing that thing, but then it is also 100% that thing. And that it was kind of driving me wild, but also. I, th- I think I have an answer for that, but I want to hear everybody else talk about yeah. it first. So I, I like what you said, Harry, about the intergenerational thing um, about this movie. I think at this point, people know there are as Scream refers to it, rules of surviving a horror movie, which is mainly never have sex, never do drugs. I I think the template for that really started with this movie. But the important thing to keep in mind is I don't think the movie intentionally set out to create that mindset. The, the reason is that Mrs. Voorhees blames sex and drugs and every youth essentially for why her son died, which is very much in the mindset of that generation, especially when you get to the eighties, which is when everything was, you know, coming to a head um, between previous generations and the current generation at the time. I also want to say to what Jason was saying about the movie, not, uh, what was it you said? Not um, being self-aware enough, I think. Yeah, sort of that that dueling. Well, you know what I said. I up until Friday the Thirteenth, I it, there was really no prototype for the slasher genre. So I do think it's a little. I, I get your point, and I agree with it. But I do think you have to keep in mind that it can't really be self-aware of something that did not exist yet. Later Hmm. movies in the series, especially Jason Goes to Space or whatever it's called, do very much poke fun at the, the tropes of the series, the tropes of slashers, and they both embrace it while pointing out, like, hey, this is meaningless, this is arbitrary, this is ridiculous. Um, but for for this movie, I, I I think it's a little unfair to hold it to the standards of anything that came after it, because this really was because of the box office success of it. It is what led to how the slasher genre evolved, and it it, it created the template in and of itself without meaning to. 
Mm, I, I would think. Yeah, I, I would raise an objection to that in that literally the movie upon which this was supposed to be riffing, or not riffing, but like imitating, released a few years before this. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize Friday the 13th, even, you know, in my incredibly limited knowledge as a, as like the template for much of anything, except maybe a really, really super marketable and repeatable character. Um, that's a whole other conversation, but like when I bring up it's, uh, self-awareness or lack thereof, it's like, it has no, it had, it felt like the movie had no real intent on being on distinguishing itself, which again is totally a legitimate way to make money on a movie. Um, but I, I just wish that it had like baked in. We've all kind of talked about how the, well, not all of us, most of us have talked about how the third act really crams all of the plot elements in up to that point. It's just like everybody hints at there being a mystery and then kind of throws it away by the time that those are answered. Like nobody, nobody really cares about the fact that, that Jason died in a, in a pond or, or any, or any of the elements that have been hinted at throughout the movie have just sort of fallen away because we've focused a whole lot on how we're going to kill these kids. And, you know, it's like, I think all of us can agree the bones of, what would become smarter, smoother, more effective horror after this are there. And that's like totally worthwhile. It wasn't entertaining to me. Those, the two things I separated my mind is like, okay, what did this do? And was it good? And it wasn't like, neither of those things is 100% on for me. Um, totally, totally like legitimate rebuttal of my point that it's, uh, you know, it's not fair to hold it to the same standards as horror that came after it. uh, But I, like, I don't see my criticism of that as, as relying on what I've seen since even just like what I've seen before this, that I, that I really enjoyed, like, like, like the original Halloween, but it looks like there's some conversations going on, uh, or that, that, that are begging to go on after me. So I'll, I'll pinch it off there. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna not pinch it off. But yeah. Pinch me out. Come on, man. Oh, uh, can I push back a little bit? Can I, I mean, I, I think the argument against what you just said would be that, this film, if anything, is maybe helped by not having a lot of the elements that you talked about, right? Like, if that is also my rebuttal. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, that if this is if this is a movie that I think if we're going to acknowledge kind of the the marketing push for this or the way that it that it kind of lit this kind of larger fire in the horror genre and and one that uh, let's say helped start the fire right along with Halloween and a, a few other films um, that continued for a decade, two decades um, kind of definitely petered out uh, in the mid two thousands or so. Um, but I, I think the argument would be that this movie doesn't have all of like this movie is not hereditary. It's not midsummer. Um, I think there's elements specifically maybe a midsummer that kind of draws from this a little bit. Um, but this movie is about a bunch of teens just getting murdered and they're getting murdered. Um, I think the problem for me uh, is that I kind of like that just straight approach, except I don't think a lot of the violence and sexuality in this movie is actually terribly interesting. And I think that's where it kind of falls off for me. I don't especially want uh, a Friday the 13th movie to be this kind of meta commentary on horror uh, or on cultural conservatism or generational kind of politics. Although I think that stuff could be interesting. Um, But if you're not going to do that stuff, I think you need some really interesting uh, ways that these teenagers are getting beheaded and whatnot. And I just don't see that here, I guess. Uh, Yeah, that's fair. Um, Y'all have done a really good job, I think, touching on the 
the conservatism of this movie, the way that um, Friday the 13th and like other horror movies for that matter are like, they're very showcasing of the, of just bodies, you know, the sexuality and sensuality of these characters. It's this weird um, dynamic that I'm not sure like how ultimately I feel about it. And ultimately I don't know how much these movies believe in that ideology that they're putting forth um, on some level, it feels like these these slasher and horror movie tentpoles are built upon this morality, almost by necessity of we need to show these largely nameless and useless characters as quote unquote impure or quote unquote sinful, um, you know, uh, shrugging off responsibilities to go make out or have sex um in like kind of iffy shady areas um doing drugs drinking alcohol um being shitty people in other ways um and that's you know across the board too not just friday the 13th um halloween and um uh, nightmare on elm street uh also dip into that i mean that's what a lot of those characters are and on some level it it feels like you know it, it makes it easier to see these characters killed in, you know, horrific um, and sometimes like really vivid ways. Not, we don't necessarily get that here, but we do get that in, in other works that are perhaps better than this one. Um, and therapeutic is maybe like too strong of a word, but there is some sort of thrill that comes with that, right? Because t- the teenagers that are seeing these movies, they want to have sex <laughs> and they want to do drugs and they want to shrug off their opportunities. So seeing these characters portrayed on screen, um, getting low key quote unquote punished for the things that, you know, that they want to do that these characters are doing that these people in the audience are saying, yes, please. Um, there's a certain kind of thrill that, that, comes with that and that seems to come through i mean even to i mentioned the saw franchise earlier that's kind of a different take on that they hone in on that a lot more that's sort of what that story is founded upon you know these people who have uh quote unquote done bad in their lives um they're coming together and uh you know harming harming each other and it kind of riffs on that a little bit um so it's there uh you know whether or not these movies are smart enough to actually buy into that conserv- uh, conservatism out of, you know, whether they're doing it out of necessity or because they really believe it is kind of, uh, you know, it's out of my element anyway. I have uh, two really good thoughts about that or I, thoughts that rise from your really good thoughts is what I meant to say. I don't know if my thoughts are really good. I think they're related. Um, to, to respond to Jason's point and a little bit Aaron's as well, first of all, um, I think I agree maybe with Aaron's take just that like, Simply that I don't think I want like a slant, irony, slant, uh, parody, self-aware version of this movie. The way that this movie seems to exist, and I know that this is not a historical take, but it seems to exist almost in a pre-ironic era, really sings for me to the point where I'm surprised I didn't like this movie more. I really, really enjoy earnestly the intersection of big, dumb, and earnest Um in a, in a way that I think this movie really captures. Like you can tell that the people who made this movie, at least in my mind, they weren't trying to be smarter than you. They were trying to really earnestly scare you and maybe doing it poorly. And there's something about that that I find so much more admirable and watchable than like the contemporary post irony movies that are, are going to be dumb, but they're also going to sort of wink at you. We've talked a lot in previous episodes about like the marvelization of movies. And I really feel like a lot of contemporary horror does that. Like Bloomhouse 
movies kind of love to do that. And I really dislike that. Um, it, it just makes me feel like they're trying to distance themselves from being exposed or vulnerable to the idea that what they're doing is actually stupid. When I think embracing the idea that something is stupid and doing it anyway is really fun. Um, and to respond to that conservatism. This is something I've thought about a lot in terms of horror movies generally. And I just, I think that the way that horror movies can reconcile with having ostensibly conservative messages, while also not themselves being conservative or clearly not being made from that viewpoint, is that there's a really interesting catharsis um, that Cody, you were referring to, and empathy to horror movies in the sense that what they're trying to do is scare their audience. And by scaring their audience, they're trying to speak to their audience and to speak to their audience's true anxieties. So there's a sense in which they're making explicit anxieties that are manifest inside us that we maybe don't address or we're maybe subconsciously aware of. But just making those anxieties um, explicit is not the same thing as... um, vilifying us for them like this is a movie that that has a conservative message not to try to tell us to not have sex or try to tell us to not be um promiscuous or whatever right but instead to say this is what you're afraid of and this is why right it's sort of pointing out a societal fear that we have or a latent conservatism in our own mindsets and why these things might scare us and that is sort of it's really empathetic and it's really not putting yourself on a different level than your audience in a way that feels almost a little bit radical to me and again that's maybe a head-ass point but i just really like the idea that a movie is saying hey like like that scares you. It scares us too. You know what I mean? There, there's something very collaborative and very um, democratized about that and about horror in a way that feels so fundamentally non-didactic and so fundamentally not preachy that you can see why horror movies speak to a demographic of kids and teenagers who are tired of being preached at and instead sort of just want to be listened to. Um, there's a sense in which movies, even movies like this, are really listening to kids in a way that a lot of other movies that are more didactic aren't. And I think that that might speak to some of the appeal of these movies, despite their ostensible conservatism, is because they're saying, yeah, it's scary to think that you might be punished for having sexual thoughts. And we're, we're scared of that, too, as opposed to saying, yes, it is bad that you're having those sexual thoughts, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's it exactly. I I don't think the movie or even slashers horror in general are vilifying, you know, having sex, doing drugs, whatever. It, it it is. It's catharsis. It is. It is acknowledging this is what you're afraid of. Like like you said, we're afraid of it too. We're going to show that having the characters do something, quote unquote morally wrong or whatever what doing something that we're when we're brought up or told not to do and having them die from that i don't think that's the same thing as condoning the message in and of itself i i think it's i i would agree it is just giving an outlet for the anxiety that's instilled upon you growing up and hearing these messages. You know, if you do this thing, it's going to be bad for you. Um, The thing I like most about horror in general is it gives you a visual way 
to confront very abstract anxieties and fears. Um, for me, slasher movies, I think, are ineffective in being scary because I, I have cystic fibrosis, I have a terminal illness. And then you move to body horror, and that's the stuff that really gets me because it, it, it's presenting in front of me something that says your body is doing something it's not supposed to, it's killing you, and it's frightening. And so there's catharsis from that. There's an abstract idea that you can't truly conceptualize and confront within you, and when it's displayed on screen, suddenly you can deal with it. And that's why horror movies often, you know, people refer to them as like a cinematic roller coaster. You're you pay and you go up and down, you get scared. And at the end of the day, it's fun to get scared because it's not going to happen to you. Um, so uh, that's, that's the merit of horror for me. And I, I think slashers get a bad reputation for the conservatism that they seemingly condone, but I agree completely. I don't think they're necessarily condoning it by depicting it sure. and punishing people for it. Right. So do you think that maybe how you're responding to it is more important than what you're actually responding to, like than the content of the film, specifically in your experience with horror, sounds like you're one of the more vocally pro and interested in, in the genre of this group. So do you think it's more about how you're responding to what you're seeing rather than what you're actually seeing or do you see those two things as completely complementary? I think it it is about the way that you view it. Um, it, it kind of like an inkblot test. You know, it, it, something is presented in front of you and you read it and deal with it however you personally do. Um, that's why there's so many different interpretations of horror movies specifically. Um you know, you go to like the final girl trope, which is solely in slasher movies, and people argue, oh, you know, it's it, it's it's the virgin, the goody two shoes. She's never done anything wrong, and she takes a phallic weapon to kill the the man that's killing all of her friends around her, and the symbolism of that. And then you have people who don't see it that way. And I, I think the beauty of horror is that there is no right or wrong way to view something, regardless of what is being depicted and the intention behind it, you're going to respond to it internally in a way that's different from everyone else. That's an interesting point. It's also interesting that you had said earlier, Nick, that um, killing there, there's this sense in horror movies that the characters have to do something wrong and then they're killed for it. And that sort of establishes this apparent moral conservatism we've been talking about. This movie is kind of an interesting inversion of that in that none of the kids in this movie do anything wrong. Like literally they're just dumb kids who are having sex and enjoying themselves in this, uh, um, summer camp. I, which is also very interesting in terms of this movie's anxieties because all of the the fear and loathing that is impressed upon them comes from legacy. It comes from something before them, right? Like it turns out Mrs. Voorhees has a grudge against camp counselors because 
the generations past camp counselors were having sex by the off in the woods um, instead of watching her child and her child died. And there's this sense in which um, even uh, to get, again, get kind of head asked, but like there's a, there's recurring native American sim- symbolism in this movie. Um, it's highly implied that camp crystal Lake is on former native land, which I mean, all of America is on former native land. So that's not um, surprising, but there's this sense in this movie that the fear or one of the big anxieties here is that this generation, these children are going to be called to account for the sins of previous generations without even really having a full understanding or conceptualization of what those sins are, which is a funny and really interesting sort of coming of age anxiety. This idea that like, what if we're responsible in part for the sins of our fathers. And what if we're, we're called to account for those despite not even really understanding what those sins are. And it also makes it interesting that the final turn here is that um, the, the villain in this movie is not a supernatural evil or an evil from outside. It's just a conservative looking old lady who has a very conservative opinion of these people. Right. So that's like the kind of final twist is that the idea that the punishment is not going to come from maybe where it even should come from, but it'll just come from these, um, these conservatives, right? There, there's a, another anxiety about that, that ultimately the, the thing that, that we're going to be punished for is coming from our own sort of uh, culture in an interesting way. So there's some, there's some interesting stuff happening here, right? But all of that is, is, not, uh, is not to contradict what we've been saying about the fact that this is first and foremost a very um, straight up, silly kind of dumb slasher movie <laughs> yeah i uh the the point about the the killer in this film kind of not being what you might expect i think is really interesting uh this movie is written by victor miller um who uh wrote this movie and he, he wasn't involved in any of the the other friday the 13th movies but he he did other um Kind of, he has a bunch of other writing credits. Uh, he has a really weird quote about uh, kind of the motivation for Mrs. Voorhees in this movie. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. Uh, he, Wikipedia says, Miller delighted in inventing a serial killer who, tuned, who turned out to be somebody's mother, a murderer whose only motivation was her love for her child. And then it quotes him and says, uh, I took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think that was great fun. Mrs. Voorhees was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids, which is such like a fucking weird quote. Uh, yeah, yeah, normal, normal person, normal writer. Yeah, Freud's having a fucking field day with uh, Mr. Miller here, man. Jesus. I don't know. I do Chris- not, I do not. My mother is very wonderful. She is not anything like Mrs. Voorhees, uh, fortunately. Yeah, uh, that's spoken from some kind of place. Um the the i don't know the whole notion of like mystery and identity and like the history of what's of of the story of this movie right like we've hinted at the fact that it doesn't really take that anywhere until near the very end um i think that all of the tools that it uses to get there are sort of and in many ways like i'm coming around to the fact that maybe if it's flawed then that's to a point and maybe that point is actually good but like uh, Harry, you said that you liked the POV camera points that you compared them to Evil Dead. Um, I don't know that that's ever worked for me in a movie that wasn't like laughing at itself in a lot of ways. Uh, I, how did everybody else feel about those like constantly? I guess Black Christmas was a good example of, of how it's used. But the the POV shot camera, it's so heavily used in this, um, often to trick the audience into thinking you know who's 
well, at least the very first time it comes in to, into thinking, you know, who is, who is being embodied and maybe that it's going to turn around and then it just doesn't. Did that work for everybody or anybody here? So it's, it's funny when I was taking notes last night while uh, my husband and I were watching it, the first note that I had was about the point of view shots. And I think the reason it works with Friday the 13th, any slasher, if you want to read into it on a deeper level, is that by placing you in the point of view of the killers and by the fact that the characters in these movies are very one-dimensional, typically, you sort of divorce the fact that these are human beings. And you, as an audience, are participating in the murders. You're, you know, enjoying the murders in the same way that the murderer is enjoying doing it. So by having a POV uh, style for uh, the villain of a slasher movie, it is very much embracing the idea that these characters are nothing more than fodder. They are only here to be killed. They don't matter as people. And that doesn't work unless they do POV. Okay. I, I would like for you to be able to dig into a little bit more of what you mean by that. I mean, obviously POV in most movies is used, well, at least in non-horror movies, is often used to create like a sense of intimacy and empathy. And of course, the way that horror subverts that is through like then using that same tool to be an, an instrument of violence, right, Lord, to make you some sort of like, it's a weak argument for it, but like complicit, right? Uh, go a little bit further into, into why you why you feel that way about how it uses this, like that specific tool. Well, uh, if you look at Halloween, um, the opening of that movie is you as an audience viewing it through the eyes of Michael Myers as a child wearing a mask, murdering his sister. The point of view shots in slasher movies and horror, they serve a purpose, um, like I said, it's it's divorcing the idea. When you're not seeing the murders, when you're seeing it from a third-person perspective, you're seeing more facets of the characters. However one-dimensional that they are, it does establish, hey, these are teenagers. You know, they are real people. They have whatever sense of personality that the script will give them. And then when it switches over you get to just stop caring about that. You stop caring about their humanity. You stop caring that they're people because the appeal of a slasher movie is you want to see characters get slaughtered horribly. And when a mo- when a slasher movie does that but doesn't do the POV shots, it instills a different type of atmosphere that isn't, better or worse at all. It's just tonally completely different. It it usually, I think, enhances the genuine horror, the genuine fear when you don't see the point of view of the killer. When you do see the point of view, then it's it's less scary and more embracing the 
the the violent aspect of the genre. Yeah, I think like from a even from like kind of just a more straight up practical perspective, I think there's something to be said for being able to watch a victim constantly react to every single thing that's happening. Uh, I think there's there's something to be said for uh, kind of tight editing uh, around, you know, um, changing shots and whatnot uh, in, you know, a scene of somebody getting murdered. I think there's also something to be said for one continuous shot in which we see every single way that they react to what we know is coming. Right. Um, and, and part of that is, is facial expressions. A, a lot of what works in this film with the PV, POV shots is uh, the character's facial expressions and, and how horrified they are at, at what they're seeing um, in a way that also takes our, uh, it takes our attention off what they're seeing. So we don't have to really worry about that. We are solely looking at the reaction. And I think that reaction is the interesting thing. I think also a lot in a lot of the uh, chase scenes, although they're not, you know, extended chase scenes. um, I think the way in which they attempt to grapple with the helplessness of the situation, they start throwing, you know, just wooden baskets and shit, right. Pots and pans, kind of anything they can get their hands on. I think a lot of that kind of claustrophobic nature uh, is accentuated uh, with, with a, with a POV shot. Um, yeah, I, I like how it's done in this film. Yeah, the style of it is is one thing. I think that the what I take more umbrage with is the uh, maybe not the execution, but like the whole spirit behind. Maybe maybe it is more the execution than like the very practical. It there's something deflating to me about seeing through the killer's eyes um, when I to give the killer some more like embodiment. I suppose like to to, to what Harry was saying um, about the like he brought up the POV shots in his in his intro. I really like the way that those are used because they're almost always used in like in an, in a monstrous way, right? Like, and no human could move like this camera is moving. And so that tells me something really essential about the thing that, that they're afraid of. Right. And their reactions to it are this are, are probably like they're appropriate for what they're seeing. Right. Um, even in something like black Christmas, that camera moves so luridly, so creepily, um, and like just so, uh, like again, like I'm then imagining the character I'm embodying, not 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 through the character's reactions, but through the actual camera work. And in this movie, I don't think it has it. It kind of comes off as a little bit, and it's probably due to budgetary and like uh, pr- production like restraints. But it just comes off as a little bit more lazy, a little bit more DIY in a way, which not necessarily a fault against it. I just think that it does not help the movie to have them in this case. I think it is contextually appropriate. Generally, like you were saying, it can be really fun and effective to see the characters reactions to it. I think that it needs to be the right case, the right place and the right time. And I don't think this movie was it. I want to hear what Harry has to say about this because he's the one who brought it up. And I want to, I want to know his takes. Uh, Sure. Um, I just like, I guess, first of all, I, I agree with aspects of what both Nick and uh, Aaron said, and I think it's it's really interesting and sort of emblematic of this movie's um, budget and sort of uh, mentality that it, it's it's a shot with a lot of utility, right? It establishes a lot of things all at once. I think the reason why you find it deflating, Jason, probably, and maybe the reason I did as well, is because it is fundamentally a shot that takes you out of the fantasy of being in a movie, right? Like the moment that you are the camera, you are thinking about the fact that it is a camera. So there's a distancing effect, which again helps to establish what Nick said, which is this idea that like we shouldn't be 
so concerned about these people as like people, right? Because it reminds us that we're watching a movie sort of fundamentally. Um, it also does centralize the reactions of the victims sort of paradoxically in a way that, that really centralizes them um, and makes it so that we're really paying attention to reactions. Um, that's sort of a, uh, trope of horror, right? Is that the outsized reactions or maybe appropriate reactions of a person who is horrified are fun to watch in a very sensual way. I'm thinking about all of the people who scream bloody murder in this movie and are so terrified and in dread for such an extended period of time. No non-horror movie will focus on the dread of a human being for that long unless they're trying to do something really pointed right. And so by having POV cameras that focus on dread and fear for so long, you're creating an atmosphere really effectively um, with a lot of utility. And the the third thing I guess I liked about it is the fact that it does actually give you some mystery information. For instance, the POV camera returns when one of the camp counselors, um, I can't remember her name. She's the first one that dies. She doesn't actually make it to the camp. Um, I don't Annie. remember. Annie, thank you. Um, it, uh, when she is hitchhiking and she gets in the car, it all of a sudden cuts to the POV camera and the person driving the car is the POV. And you know right then that she's fucking screwed because like that's what the POV camera is for. But we know also that from her reaction, the, uh, um, the, the murderer must not be some supernatural force. It must, in fact, just be a person. Uh, unless, like I joked to, to Aaron and Cody at the time, we're going to cut over and see that Jason himself was driving the car, which would have been the funniest thing ever, so I don't know why they didn't do it, but uh, yeah. I digress. It's just, uh, it's, so I guess I liked it. I, I liked that it immediately established that it was a horror movie. There's a really good part where um, one of the other camp counselors is, uh, throwing blinds aside to try to find the killer. And when she finally throws the right blind aside, it cuts from her throwing the blind aside to us behind the blind now as the camera. So we know that the killer was behind there. So just that sort of contextual information feels really creative in a way I kind of liked. But again, in a movie that is so short on plot and so short on reasons to be really interested in the moment to moment, further distancing that moment to moment maybe doesn't work very well, Jason, to get to your point. It's sort of interesting. I find myself defending this movie. Like, I didn't enjoy watching it, right? It's just, it's more fun to think about than it is to watch, I guess, uh, which is sort of interesting. Especially, ironically, for, for such a uh, sensual movie, right, that you would think would be primarily about the watching experience. I, I do want to say, to uh, going back to the seeing the expression on the character's face in the point of view shots, before they're about to be murdered. Um, there is a movie from uh, 1960 that came out before Psycho, and Psycho usually gets the credit for kind of being the genesis of uh, slasher films. Uh, There's a movie by Michael Powell called Peeping Tom, and it was banned and criticized immediately. It kind of ruined his career for a very long time, if not forever. And it involves a man who kills women and records it. And you find out that on top of the camera, he has positioned a mirror because as he's recording, he wants the victims to see 
their face as they're about to die to see their impending doom. So that's an aspect of horror that dates back 20 years before this movie ever came out. Um, it it does it, it it goes back to the mindset that the killer is doing this because they want to see the terror. They want them to be afraid as they die. So when I say that with the point of view shots, it, it's not just me reading super into it. It, it, it does have an established history um, as a uh, as a method of camera work. That, that honestly, that's a take that I could get behind. Uh, that it's like an element of the plot. I think, I think Harry's point about um, how how this movie uses that to like contextualize certain shots and really carry us through a scene that does make me think a little bit differently of of like how I wrote it off within the first few minutes of the movie because again, it's just like I don't know it. it this movie plays off of, or at least my experience of it plays off of a lot of horror that I've seen since. Um, a lot of like better executions of similar ideas and just a long, long history of seeing the hockey mask face um, and the machete uh, and just like associating it with this and sort of that campy horror vibe. And I, I, I will lie. There is a certain extent to which I see that and think, oh, well, usually films that are like prototypical or or like Harry said, er films for a genre are often better than the things that they became that I like would have become more familiar with over time. And in this case, I don't think, I don't think that's true. I think that it is just sort of the straight up cheesy, um, you know, as inspired and guided by a conservativist uh, viewpoint as any horror film has ever been um, just you know, it started the thing. So it gets, it it gets remembered. You know, it is also telling that the character as marketed as sold does not appear in this movie appears later. So I think that a familiarity with the rest of the series in a weird way would make you think better about this movie. You know, if you'd seen two through, you know, five or whatever, and then seen this, I think I probably would have felt a little bit different. Of course, that's not realistic, but yeah, I think I agree with that. I, I'm having a total Bader uh, Madoff effect with Peeping Tom. Didn't we just talk about that, Cody? Or like you had just watched that, right? Uh, yeah, uh, right before our viewing of Friday the 13th last night. Um, Friday the 13th last night. I had watched uh, Peeping Tom because uh, it is, as of this recording, streaming on Amazon Prime, if anybody feels like watching it. Uh, I would definitely recommend it. It's something that I... Uh, uh, one of my film film professors had showed us um, it, uh, in like a it just like generic film analysis or whatever class. They showed um, a, one of the first scenes of the movie, which is one of these video recorded murders. And, you know, as we've talked about how, you know, the implications of that relationship work and probably don't work in Friday the 13th, um, the fact that the viewer is the one not just viewing the action, but committing it um, and what those implications are, taking that one step further and saying, you know, the, this character in Peeping Tom, this is their complicated relationship with the lens, uh, with the the camera, which is, you know, shown upon them. And then all of a sudden they're the one holding the camera. So the fact that what we're seeing, the image in the frame is the view of us, the viewer, the view of the character in the film, the character, or excuse me, the camera, the character in the film is holding. And then, if you want to get like really 
like academically headass about it. Like it's also the image of the literal camera that is filming the action in real life because this is a movie. Um, there are a lot of different, um, maybe interesting conversations you can have, maybe not. Um, but yeah, that is uh, a movie that is doing something completely different from Friday the 13th, but by certain definitions, it is definitely a, a slasher. And so maybe that's a better example of what those point of view shots can, can do and convey. Mm-hmm. Damn. Put Peeping Tom in the Trilon, John. For real. Uh, okay, well, are we are we exhausted of ideas? Are we ready to go to that that place? That that venerable segment that we know and love. It's time, baby. I think it's, it's time. Time for. I think it's time for. Cody's, Cody's noties. Holy wow. shit, dude! That was the best one we've ever done. Uh, yeah, maybe it might be. We can fix it in post if it's not. Um, yeah, we can fix it in post. Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, so I had originally committed myself to to one sort of flavor of Noti for us today. But after realizing what this movie is and specifically who is in this movie, um, there is one that I needed to I felt the need to revisit. It might be the culmination of that bit. Um, so with Friday the 13th, we've been granted a special opportunity to explore the connections between the two cultural titans that the six degrees idea has revolved around since the beginning of recorded history so this is a another installment of six degrees of goofy movie a la kevin bacon fuck yeah so um yeah just kind of tying off that circle whatever the metaphor is um so let's start with kevin I, i believe you mean pinching it off i know for a fact that i do not but that's okay uh, we can fix it in post. Uh, Kevin Bacon, he doesn't command the spotlight, I, I would say, like he once did, but he still keeps active. And he was actually in a feature film earlier this year, uh, kind of coincided with um, the the COVIDness of this year. Um, so it went to streaming services pretty quickly, I believe. Uh, it's called You Should Have Left, which I have not seen, but it seems to give off vibes of a psychological horror and or haunted house e movie. Um, and Bacon's co-star in You Should Have Left is none other than uh, Amanda Seyfried. I believe I, I looked up how to pronounce that correctly, and I believe it is Seyfried, um, who is fairly talented, uh, I think, anyway. She might be most well-known for something like Mean Girls or Mamma Mia, but she can also be found in things like First Reformed and uh, pod favorite Twin Peaks The Return. Um, secret on that. Yeah, shout out to Twin Peaks The Return. Come on the pod. Uh, I like her a lot. I think she's a very good actress. Yeah, totally. Yeah, she's great. Um, Definitely. Um, maybe not in this next thing that we're about to connect her to, but Seyfried, uh has also been putting out work this year other than um, other than You Should Have Left. Uh, she can be found providing the voice for Daphne Blake in the animated film Scoob, which I believe Jason saw and didn't like very much. I saw Scoob. Leave it in the trash. I believe you hated that movie. I really disliked Why? it. Thoroughly. And which, it should have been a slam dunk. It's about dogs. Right. It's about... Uh, things it's about fucking greek mythology they go to hell they go to hell guys they go to the underworld to find alexander the great's treasure and it still sucks yes gooby-doo thing that there's not actually any paranormal shit how do they go to hell it is incredibly paranormal oh sorry uh they they do that in in one of the series too they like get very uh cosmic horror uh with it so yeah scooby-doo is a very uh very strange franchise. Yeah, the the monsters on Earth were not enough, so they looked to the stars and to our historical texts. It it is a bad movie. Let's let's continue. 
I mean, do it's, they call uh, it? Do they call it hell in that movie? Wouldn't it be Hades? I think it's, it's the Greek it, underworld. It, you are you are writing a better script than they did, uh, but it, I think they just call it the underworld. It's basically like where Alexander the Great left his treasure or some shit. I I barely remember. It's it's bad. Sure. No, that's that's fair. Um. So yeah, suffice to say, uh, seek it out at your own risk. Uh, it sounds like. Um. But the nice thing about Scoob. Uh, is, though it, I will say it employs one of the most prolific, talented, fucking legendary voice actors of all time, uh, and that's Frank Welker. Um, since 1969, at the t- as of the time of this recording, this man has accumulated 855 acting credits. Uh, check Holy the IMDb. Shit. Yeah, he's actually he uh, actually has been providing the voice for Fred Jones in the Scooby Doo cartoonies uh, since the OG shows. Uh, but this 2020 movie adaptation demanded his talents for the voice of the titular dog uh, as well. I believe Scooby Doo and Pterodactyl he's credited with. I haven't seen the movie, so there's some Jurassic Parkness in there too. It sounds like. Um, and I mean, his IMDb profile is such a treasure trove. Uh, there are so many fun nuggets to be found in his list of credits. Uh, do you know what other creature he lent his voice to, uh, specifically in the year 1995? Anybody have any ideas? Did you say creature? Yeah, um, an animated creature. Uh, and that would be Bigfoot in the cinematic masterpiece, A Goofy Movie. Let's oh, my God. Go. And there you have it. The, there the we have it. End Six degrees connected. of end game. Yeah. We've reached the end game. Wow. <laughs> uh, so that's, yeah, that's your education for the day. Is that's that all the only know, that ever. we have? Is uh, we, got, we got an interactive component as well. I couldn't, uh, oh, let, shit. Us, couldn't let us get out of uh, um, an episode concerning a movie that is dripping with horror and slasherdom without introducing a Tri-Libs uh, horror edition. Um, so Ooh, you're familiar, in for a good one. Nick. I sure hope so. Um, for those unfamiliar, uh, this is um, hearkening back. That's a word, right? Hearkening back to the days of Mad Libs, where we're going to throw out some words and fit them in a, in a template to tell us a little story. Uh, we don't know where those words are going in and what the context will be. Uh, and that's what makes this so much fun. So we're going to go I think in the past we've done reverse alphabetical order by first name, uh, and that is nice because that gets our guests going first. So we'll go Nick, then Jason, then Harry, then Aaron. Um, and Nick, what I'm going to need uh, from you first is an adjective, any adjective. Moist. Hell yeah. That's like top tier adjective. Um, next, uh, Jason, from you, I'm going to need a noun. Bowl. Bowl? Like B-O-W-L? Like B-O-W-L. Sweet. I didn't know in the moment if there were other bowls, so that worked out. Um, Next, Harry, I'm going to need a name. Um, First name, first name, last name, whatever you'd like. Jason Voorhees Daphnis. Jason Voorhees Daphnis. That's, That's with a hyphen. Oh, with a hyphen? Oh, uh, right. Okay. The, well, I guess Voorhees would have been the mother, right? Voorhees took the took Daphnis's name, but they wanted I, okay. to both. Keep I, their I wanted name. I wanted to reclaim it, so I decided to make it hyphenated. You had the uh, choice, 
just pick one, but you decided not to. It's technically just a union, not a marriage, unfortunately. No, I mean, that's. I, is, is there anything else we need to, I mean, Jason, do you want to bring out the litigation here? Is that a different episode thing or you okay? Uh, I cannot comment. I cannot comment. Very diplomatic. That's fair. Um, his lawyers don't let him comment. I'm his lawyer. Oh, hello. Uh, Harry the lawyer. I'll have to make note of that for, for the future when I get in trouble. Um, and that also bought me some time while I put that in the appropriate place. When you so get into when right. you get in, into a Harry situation? Ba-dum-ts. That's why I became a lawyer, actually, is to make that pun. Get <laughs> yourself into <laughs> a Harry situation. situation. Right. I'll okay. work on the billboards. Yeah, we'll have a PS- PSA out within the month. Um, in any case, uh, uh, we have Aaron up next, I believe. Um, I'm going to need another name from you. Oh. Uh... Aaron, baby. Aaron, let's go. Aaron Grossman, let's do it. Aaron, so, okay, you gave me a couple there. There's wow, Aaron, Aaron Baby, no, Aaron Grossman. Aaron Baby. No, that's weird. That wouldn't work. I don't think so, that would so Aaron or Aaron Grossman? Uh, just do Aaron Grossman, I think. Just do Aaron Grossman. Do whatever's okay. funnier, I guess. Uh, I mean, you got a funny name. Your, I mean, your last name is the word Gross in it. Pretty, it's pretty bad, isn't it? Uh, I would argue that as well. Uh, back to Nick. Um, from you, could I please get an object? How crass can I be? Oh, dildo. Yes. Perfect. That's what I was hoping you would say. Well, named right that. before this, too. Let's go. Um, boo, 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 boo. Jason, uh, from you, could I get an emotion? And then after I get that from you, could you say an emotion out loud so that I could put it in here? Uh, and livid. Nice. Wow. Uh, Harry, from you, could I please get a song? Any song. Uh, I can't stop loving you. Nice. Great. But give him the name of the song. Okay, yeah, yeah. Title the song, please. Yeah, but no, yeah. I love how we all gravitated towards that. That was beautiful. Nick gets credit for it, I think. Yeah, I yes, definitely. Nick MVP comedy points. Um, (laughs) uh, Aaron, from you, could I please get a type? Or brand of alcohol? Uh, Old English. Old English. Excellent. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, back to Nick, I believe. Nick, from you, could I please get the name of a movie? Any movie? Um, Detective Pikachu. Fuck yeah. Wow, callback. I love it. Um, Jason. <laughs> uh, Jason, <laughs> from you, could I please get a, a, a Halloween costume, like a type or flavor of Halloween costume? Uh, a specific one or a type or flavor? What? Whatever comes to mind. I, it's it's adaptable. It's It's flexible. Um... Uh, member of the Greek military. I forget what they're called, but they look funny. Okay. Myrmidon, I think, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Myrmidons. Myrmidons. I was thinking modern, the modern guys, the ones with the fun poofies on their hats. And, Those guys and aren't called it? Uh, <laughs> uh let, let, let's actually go for, um, Detective Pikachu. 
Okay. Wearing uh, yep, yep, okay. I'm just imagining what wearing a detective Pikachu costume would look like and it makes You me don't smile. have to. You don't oh. have to. Interesting. Um Harry, from you, could I please get a weapon? Oh, can you? Uh, what Jason said, Caltrips. That uh, I'll go with um, a scimitar. I'm I'm in the the Greek space now. Sweet. Um, y'all are really good at saying weapons. Uh, with me kind of emerging into the gaming world, y'all are really good at listing weapons that I don't know how to spell. Could you uh, humor me, please? It's a S C I M T A R S C I M. Oh, sorry. There's a second I. T A R I C I M I T A R. Spelling things aloud is difficult when you're it, on a podcast. It is. Sorry to put you. That's okay. Uh, put you under the microscope. So there. Um, no, but uh, they fought uh, against more Eastern civilizations in the racist many, movie. Many Greeks. Some of the many long Greeks. Show. Yes, many Greeks fell to scimitars, so it's appropriate. Scimitars. Right. They, they fought against the uh, air quotes Persians. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The entire Eastern world. (laughs) Who are largely depicted as faceless monsters in the 300 movies. Make sure to to watch the the Trial of uh, 300 episode uh, for our 300th episode. Uh, Yes. Thinking about that many episodes gives me a headache. Um, As will this next one, maybe. Hopefully not. Aaron, from you, could I please get a first name? First name? Uh, We... Harry. Excellent. Uh, Nick. Oh, wait, wait. Sorry, we got to guess. Can we do Nick? Sorry, Harry. Can we do Nick? Sure. Yeah, we got to do Nick. Right. Yeah, I just, I feel bad. He's the guest. He's got to be in here. Uh, uh, Cody, doesn't play, me. Cody doesn't play as many video games as we do. Can you spell that for him? That'd be actually. Uh, yeah, N-I-C-H. Okay. Nick. Excellent. Yeah. Spelling Thanks. just needs to be like a, a niche thing that people. Uh, Kicking myself for not doing Gladius. Uh, me too. Uh, I'm going to kick you for not doing Gladius. What the fuck? Uh, back to Nitch, um, or Nick, excuse me, I was reading the page here. Could I please get from you a bad name to call somebody? And I will say, you know, this is left open for something. Uh, I could, I specifically could say on an American based podcast without getting in trouble. Um, Aaron, do you want to do like devil on his shoulder, angel on his shoulder thing? Because I want to say like, say poop or whatever. I was going to say, Aww. say Harry, but uh, that would be wow. a throwback joke. That's not actually funny for this uh, ad lib, unfortunately. Uh, I think lib, you have an answer. Uh, that. I think you have oh, an yeah, answer. Sorry. That, yeah, Nick, I was uh, bogged down by their bit. What did you say? Uh, a daftness. A daftness. daftness. All right. Damn. Excellent. Perfect. Or like daftness. Ooh. Ooh. Got it. Ooh, Jason. Jason, are you still alive over there? I've never thought about that. I like that a lot. Um, Excellent. Filling in some blanks here. All right. I think we're on our last one. And that's going to go back to Jason, who may or may not have life uh, at this time. But Jason, if you can hear me, um, could, could I please get an adjective from you? Thank you, my friend, Cody. I have never been better. An adjective. Um. Sp- uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I love how you just started saying a syllable and hope the rest would fill in. That <laughs> is literally how I speak Whoops. every single day on on mic. Um, uh, adjacent. Wow, so many Jasons on this episode. Excellent. Um, we are are 
are at the end. Um, while I quickly copy and paste a few things uh, in here, uh, any of you have any entries in this? Any words that you thought of that you're particularly proud of? Uh, I went on a I went on a little bit of a Wikipedia hole here, and <laughs> I learned that Gladius is the the name of a uh, Roman foot soldier sword, but in in ancient Greek, uh, the similar sword was called the Xiphos. That's that sounds right. H O S. Oh, is very I, cool. I know that from the video game Apotheon. If anybody here has played that, nice. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a the fun one game. where like it's a relief on the side of like Greek pottery. Yes, that's playable, right? I I love oh, that yeah. game a lot. Been Gladius a long time. is one of my favorite singers. Okay, I got it out. All right, we're um, gonna. I, we're, I go ahead. I was just gonna say we're gonna come back like next episode, and Harry is gonna be like one of those super conservative like weapon collectors who has like a giant display case where it's like just, just guns and swords just lined up on his he's gonna wall. Be, he's going to be the fucking Alan Quatermain of Minneapolis. Listen, this might be too much information to, to reveal here as Cody fills things in, but there was a 15-year-old Harry who had not only a 300 poster, uh, but also replica weaponry from 300. No. And a, a book called Weapon that he did peruse many, many times to learn as much as he could about it. That sounds wow, really cool. Uh, why, why did you stop being that cool guy? I don't understand. Unfortunately, I was radicalized by uh, far-left conspiracy theories. Yeah, okay. It's really shocking to learn that you grew up doing something really dorky. Um, Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it shit my entire perception about you. I haven't even told you about the katanas. <laughs> Good God. I assure you, Harry, you have told us about the katanas. <laughs> um... Wow. Speaking of things that slice, I have no segue. Um, as we approach, uh, as this episode rather approaches the runtime of the movie, um, I do have one more thing to ask of, uh, specifically Harry from you. Could I get a food? Uh, in my haste, I skipped this one, but with this, we'll be ready. Oh man. Uh, what do I wish I would... Runyon's <laughs> man. RIP, not RIP for real, but you know, for all intents and purposes. Excellent. I miss it so much. Oh, God. Just Runyon's, Runyon's I'm pining for. Don't get it to go. It's good. Ooh. Um, and with that, uh, we got ourselves a little story here. Uh, so our story takes place on a warm summer evening at Camp Moist Bowl. The camp loser, Jason Voorhees Daphnis, <laughs> was wandering... Back, uh, I put in their pronouns here. I, I, I'll, I'll keep with that. Um, Jason Voorhees Daphnis uh, goes by he, him pronouns. Uh, Jason, is that right, since that's your namesake? Thank you. Okay, perfect. Um, but I'll stick with there just because it's in digital ink. I was wandering back to their cabin following a meal of cold runyons in the mess hall. R.I.P. Jason Voorhees Daphnis returned to their cabin and called out to their bunkmate, Aaron Grossman. Aaron Grossman! Aaron Grossman! No response. Jason Voorhees Daphnis climbed the ladder to Aaron Grossman's bunk to find them wide-eyed, unmoving, and impaled with a dildo. Well, so that yes, worked out very well. Yes, yes. Lol. Jason Voorhees Daphnis was livid. They ran to find help. The camp was unusually silent. There was nobody around the campfire singing, I can't stop loving you. There was not a single person binge drinking Old English in Cabin 12. And there was nobody in the movie night in the movie night cabin for that evening screening of Detective Pikachu. At long last, Jason Voorhees Daphnis arrived at the camp director's station and knocked on the door. 
The door opened, and a looming figure appeared, wearing a Detective Pikachu costume and brandishing a scimitar. Jason Voorhees Daphnis screamed in terror. The figure pulled off their mask. It was Nick Daphnis. <laughs> See, as opposed to like Nick, Nick Assface or something. His ex-husband. <laughs> uh, Nick Daphnis, the camp director, and they were smiling. Jason Voorhees Daphnis... <laughs> Jason Voorhees Daphnis heard laughter behind them and turned around. It was Aaron Grossman, unharmed and drenched in fake blood. You should have seen your adjacent face, Aaron Grossman said. Jason Voorhees Daphnis gave an exasperated sigh and grinned. I'm going to need a lot of old English to forget this fright, they said. The end. Wow. There's wow. real intrigue there. I was just. I really like the. Sorry, Harry. The departure into body horror there at the end when it's implied that Jason Voorhees Daphnis has an adjacent face. (laughs) And so maybe the hyphenated name means more than just a a civil union. It's like the Roman god, calendar god or whatever, who has two faces. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Um, I guess I tune in for the next installment to see how that adjacent face plays into some uh, more troubling body horror. One of them does the kissing and one of them does the talking. Ew. In equal yeah. measure. Um. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been this. Has been, well, thanks, guys. I was, I was trying to. I was trying to dip blue because everybody else was talking dildos and 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 making my name a swear word. God, kissing kissing is blue for Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Trilove. This has been our episode about Friday the Thirteenth, nineteen eighty original film, playing at the Trilon this coming weekend. Uh, get your tickets at trilon.org. And if you happen to go to be there in person, uh, wear a mask, uh, bring hand sanitizer. Do not bring anything that requires you to take your mask off. Um, the Trilon is doing a lot to try and protect its uh, its, its its most ardent fans and uh, and the public. So uh, support them in that effort by, by just following the damn rules. Um, alternatively, you can buy a ticket to support them or get some merch or make a donation at trilon.org and then not go. Save everybody else a little bit of worry, too. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'd just like to add that even if you wear a hockey mask to the Friday the 13th showing, first of all, that's a little bit anachronistic because that iconic character does not actually appear in the Get film. Get their asses. See, but I would give you points for cosplay anyway. If you only wear a face mask, beneath that hockey mask. Both masks are very important. The hockey mask being optional, the face mask not being optional. So in summary, if you wear a hockey mask, make sure you wear a face mask underneath that mask. I've been Harry. You can find me at Chitok here. Uh, if you do decide to uh, mack on your date to the movie, you will get murdered halfway through. So uh, don't do not do that. Uh, I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. Plot twist. I've been Nick Grant Spottom this whole time. You can find me at, oh, at the MCO Kenway on Twitter. <gasps> now, listeners, you keep your noses clean, you understand? You'll be hearing from us if you don't. We ain't gonna stand for no weirdness out here. Oh.